Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to Dakota Aquatic, your one-stop show for the fish and reptile hobbyist. Now, without further ado, let's get on with this fun-filled episode. And here's your host, Andrew. Welcome to another show of Dakota Aquatic Plus. Uh, today's show we have Eric from Majestic Cichlids on, and uh, he has bred his angelfish again, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. So, Eric, how are you today? Uh, I'm doing actually very well. I'm very happy. My red koi spawned for the uh, second time, but they actually produced a very successful spawn for me this time around, so I'm actually very happy that things are going well for me. Um, it's been a long time coming, but, uh, you know, patience and a little bit of hard work and you get to where you want to go. So I think it was just a matter of, uh, playing chess with these angelfish, if anything, so to speak. Well, I'm glad that they, uh, successfully, uh, spawned this time for you. So, um, uh, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about how you hand- take care of your eggs? Because last time when we talked, you were talking about, you know, your, your water conditions and all that. So... Uh, like this time now that they've spawned, what do you do for the moment they spawn until they hatch? Well, what I like to do is I like to leave the eggs. Once they spawn and they'll deposit the eggs onto the slate rock, I actually leave the eggs in with the parents for roughly an hour, and I watch the behavior on the eggs. And uh, it also gives me some time to see if the eggs were properly fertilized. And uh, just, you know, due to the parents' behavior, I keep an eye on them. And depending on how they're acting around the eggs will determine whether or not if I'm going to allow them to parent-raise the batch that they have or I'm going to remove the eggs and uh, artificially raise them myself. So um, if the male and female are starting to fan the eggs, clean the eggs properly, or they're actually taking care of the eggs the way they're supposed to, then I'll leave the eggs in there with them. But usually, you know, first two, three times around, they are a little bit stubborn. They don't know what they're doing. They're going to make a couple of mistakes. But um, I'm actually dealing with these angelfish that are a little bit hard to get for me financially. So uh, what I did was I pulled my first batch of eggs out because I want to artificially raise them because I know that right off the bat that I'm going to successfully raise them. And uh, it's going to be a, a pretty good hatch out because I'm going to be keeping an eye on them. And uh, the female actually started to pick off a few eggs. Maybe she got a little nervous. Uh, There was a little bit of traffic in my house at the time. A couple of kids running around. You know, we had some family over, so the angelfish became a little bit nervous, and they started to pick off the eggs. So uh, what I'll do is I'll take this first batch. I'll artificially raise them so that way I could get some angelfish from this bunch. And then on the second or third try, I'll let them get a go at it. And uh, that'll be... That'll give them a good opportunity to learn what they have to do and make a few mistakes. It'll be affordable for them as well as myself because I will be raising that first batch of eggs while they're learning on the second and third batches. So it gives me the opportunity to raise a batch of angelfish as well as allow my angelfish to learn the ropes of uh, parent raising their own babies. Okay. <clears throat> now these, uh, these uh, what are they, the red koi you said, uh, angelfish? Um do a lot of people breed them, or are they just kind of a, a, a are they rare to be breeding? Or 
Well, um, in my area, I do live in the Bronx in New York City. Um, to my knowledge, you know, as far as um, as far as my eyes can possibly see, in my area, the local fish stores, your big uh, chain stores, and you know those businesses that are around my area, I have never seen a red koi angelfish at any point in time. And I do believe that I may be the only person in the area that's producing these angelfish. Um, I do see people breeding them from time to time on the Internet, so you do have a few people that are actually carrying these angelfish. But, you know, um, 90% of the time these people are in other states. I've seen a guy actually breeding these angelfish in Japan that had, he was doing a monstrous job with these angelfish. He had a rack, 40 tanks, amazing. And he played a really big influence on me wanting to get these angelfish and wanting to breed them because I saw the way his angelfish looked. He was keeping up beautiful tanks. The babies were beautiful, gold, uh, gorgeous colorations to them, beautiful fins. And I just, the hooks were in me, and I just had to get a group and try it myself. And it's just been a full steam ahead of anything from there. So um, what does your water parameters have to be for to get them to breed? What do you do to trigger breeding? Well, actually, um, I started my breeding setup. I was convinced there was a project between myself and my father, and uh, we experimented with a couple of different uh, water parameters. And as you know, just like we all do, we have to make some mistakes along the road, and uh, it makes you a better fish keeper. You learn from your mistakes. You try something new, and whatever it is that you try new that works for you, that's the plan that you stick with. So uh, when I first got into angel fish keeping, I was actually – keeping my angelfish in a slightly alkaline water condition, which is a harder water, higher pH. And uh, my angelfish actually spawned in those conditions. They bred, they laid the eggs, they fertilized the eggs, but I ran into one problem. The egg cases actually became hard, and the babies were not able to hatch out into wigglers. They remained as eggs, the egg case became hard, and they just stood that way. So I did a little bit of research, and uh, I found out that when you lower your pH to a more acidic condition, uh, it creates, it makes it easier for you to actually hatch out the eggs because it actually puts less pressure against the eggs, your carbonate hardness, your uh, general hardness, and the overall pH being a softer water parameter is actually easier, and I've become very successful at breeding angelfish and and uh, my water parameters actually right now that maintain them and I will continue to maintain them are a 6.4 acidic pH, 82 degrees Fahrenheit. And another thing that contributes to a good angelfish breeding is to not have too much current or water flow in your tanks, to have a very calm water conditions. And that actually helps your diet, you know, your clean water, water changes, all those things contribute to the angelfish being productive breeders, if anything. <clears throat> now, when you have your uh, the eggs set up, do you do water changes on the eggs? Oh, uh, yeah. What I like to do is I like to remove the eggs from the parent tank. I put them in a one-gallon jar, and what I do is I take the water from the directly from the faucet, which is chlorinated water, and I don't have any fancy setups or uh, systems where I can... Uh, you know, uh, regulate the temperature or, uh, you know, set up the pH or anything right off the bat. So what I do is I uh, put that jar into a five-gallon tank. I set up a heater in there for 82 degrees. 
And normally, to a regular temperature on a tank or any type of a you know bag when you float or something, it's usually about a half hour to an hour. And I set that temperature to 82 degrees. I set the jar in there. And while I'm letting the temperature regulate, I go to the bathroom. I grab my uh, peroxide water. I put 10 drops of peroxide water per gallon of water. I let everything sit until it reaches the desired temperature that I want. And then what I do is I just take the uh, slate rock. I plop it into the uh, one-gallon jar. And I set an air storm in there, not overly, you know, not too high on the air. But uh, you want a, a nice, calm stream of air close by the eggs. You don't want it over the eggs because it can actually uh, disrupt the eggs. It can break the eggshells or knock the eggs off the slate rock. And it can it make uh, conditions that are really ideal for uh, hatching out eggs of anything. So the chlorinated water destroys the bacteria. Also, the hydrogen peroxide creates a sterile environment for the eggs. And you want to regulate your water so that way you get as close to the water parameters as the parent tank that they came out of. So 82 degrees, pH as close as possible. You don't have to be perfect or uh, anal about it, but uh, do your best to get it as close as possible with uh, chlorinated water and your hydrogen peroxide and create a very thorough environment, clean, and those eggs should hatch out in three days. You'll be having wiggles, no problem. So what's your... Um What's, what's your plans? Because you're very successful at this. So what, what's your plans for the future with breeding angelfish? Do you plan to get more and more tanks? Or Yeah, well, you know, like I said, I've said to uh, people in the, in the, you know, in the hobby and uh, people that approach me about this, uh, if it was up to me, I would have a room full of fish tanks. And I love the hobby. I absolutely adore it. I adore the people that I work with. Uh, friends that helped me out, friends that I've made on YouTube, such as yourself, and a, a whole list of other people that have subscribed to my channels, great comments and everything. And uh, if it was up to me, I would have a basement full of tanks. But, you know, sometimes life deals you a little bit of a different card, and you have to work with what you got. And maybe down the road, my situation may change, and, hey, you never know, I might get into a really big breeding program or uh, do something a little bit different. Let's see what, you know, let's see what the future holds, if anything. Well, you're very successful at what you're doing. I don't see you having any problems. Um, do you plan to breed other fish other than uh, angelfish? Yeah, I've actually had a few fish on my mind. Um, I'm actually working on a certain cichlid species. I wish I could tell you, but I would like to leave it for surprise. It's not a guaranteed thing. It's not in black and white yet. The gentleman that's uh, trying to procure the fish for me is uh, having a little bit of trouble because actually this fish is an endangered species, and it is a very beautiful fish. It's a South American, it's South American, Central American cichlid. It's slightly on the aggressive side, a little bit more of a robust fish with a bigger body, a uh, thicker, and uh, a little bit more attitude to it. To it, but um, he's working on it. We're trying to work out a deal, and it's uh, it's going to be a really interesting project if I could get my hands on these fish and uh hopefully breed them, if anything, you know. I like to take it one day at a time and not to get too far ahead of myself because uh, just like everything else, you, you tackle something, you work out a game plan, you're going to make a few mistakes, and then you got to learn from your mistakes and, and try to perfect whatever it is that you're working with. And, uh, you know, eventually things work out in the long run and you get to where you got to go as long as you keep working at it and, you know, at whatever it is that you're doing. And, uh, um, <clears throat> I, I was on your YouTube channel. And I had seen your uh, your uh, 
them containers that you put your uh, hang on the side of your tank that yes. you raise your your fish in, your babies. Why don't you yes. tell us a little bit about those? Because you seem to really think that that's the proper way to do it. Uh, you're talking about the uh, marina breeding boxes, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really a great little gadget to have. It's been really handy for me. It's made life a lot easier. I've actually tried to raise batches of fry in uh, 10-gallon tanks, uh, 20-gallon tanks. It's a little bit harder to feed them. So that tank is kind of a, it's a little bit more contained and the fry are in a smaller space. So when you do squirt the baby brine shrimp into the tank, there's women all over the place, and it triggers the fry's instinct to feed. They, you know, they go after the, the baby brine shrimp because it's moving, and, you know, fish like to chase things down and move anything that's alive. They go crazy for it. So uh, that little space actually makes it easier to take care of the fry, feed them, because the food is right in their face. They can't go very far without bumping into a baby brine shrimp, if anything. And uh, it's actually a very clean environment for them because the water that's in that little container is diffused by the water that's in the larger tank. So when you're dealing with that smaller, you know, it's about a half a gallon of water that's in that uh, breeding trap. But when you look at the big picture, you actually have 75 gallons of water that's coming from the parent tank that's being filtered by two or three filters, and then it's coming out clean, going back into the main tank, and then getting back carried up into that breeding box. So there's always a good, clean source of water for those uh, babies. And actually, when you have that breeding box set up, it acts as a drip system. So when you do your water changes on your larger tank, uh, the water that does go up into that breeding trap, it's on a drip system depending on how you set it. If you set it up on low, the water goes in uh, small amounts at a time, and you don't throw your fish into shock. So they're being acclimated all day long to whatever situation that you're putting them in. So, and uh, I've seen that that's been the best method for me because when that water goes into that, that breeding trap, it just... It goes in very slowly, and they acclimate to whatever situation. I've actually put straight chlorinated water into my tank, and with uh, a little bit of condition, and I've had absolutely no problems. It's been a wonderful little gadget to have, and I'm glad that whoever invented that thing made it because I don't know what I would be doing right now without it. What are they called again? Uh, Marina breeding boxes. Marina breeding boxes. Yeah, I... I saw that they got that little sponge in there that kind of filters out uh, so that the babies don't end up falling back into the tank, the bigger yeah. tank and stuff. <clears throat> now, after they hatch, how 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 soon do you feed them? All right. Um, usually they hatch on the seventh day. They become free swimming fry. So you want to give them a couple of hours to absorb that yolk sac that they have on them. Uh, I usually give it about six hours. You could monitor them. You could pretty much eyeball it because uh, when they do have that yolk sac, they have that nice little round yellow bump on them. And, you know, that that's a, a clear indication that they still have that yolk sac and they're still feeding on it. So you don't want to feed them any food at that time because they can run into digestive problems and it can kill the fish. So they're not supposed to eat while, eat while they still have that yolk sac. So what I do is... I let a couple of hours go by, and being that the tank is set up at 82 degrees, 
it's a it's a hotter tank and it actually speeds up the metabolism and it allows them to absorb that yolk sac a little bit faster. So uh what I try to do is I try to time the uh time from the when the babies go free swimming uh on the seventh day. On the sixth day I like to set up a brain shrimp hatchery because as you know it takes twenty four hours to hatch out brain shrimp properly. And uh, at the time that the babies do become free swimming, I also have the baby brine shrimp freshly hatched. And those baby brine shrimp as well have yolk sacs, which are very nutritious for the uh, free swimming fry. And as soon as those free swimming fry are uh, able to absorb those yolk sacs, I give them just a small amount of brine shrimp to uh, get them started and uh, get that feeding instinct going in them. And then uh, from there on, I'll feed them a couple of weeks, baby brine shrimp, maybe four or five times a day. I'll feed them up. I'll feed them until you see that little golden belly, which is, you know, a clear indication that they're nice and full, nice and plump, and uh, that they've eaten well. So I, I feed them until I see that. And then what I allow to do is uh, about two, maybe three hours, I let them, you know, swim around, get the exercise or whatever it is. They burn off all that with the metabolism. It goes right back, and you just repeat the process. You just give them a little bit more baby brine shrimp, Fan up their stomachs a little bit, and in a couple of hours they'll digest all of that, and you just repeat the process every time. So, but um, the baby brine shrimp, you have to be you have to be very careful with baby brine shrimp because, as you know, as anything that's alive in the tank, if it does become dead and falls to the bottom and rots at the bottom of the tank, it can create a problem because it does produce an ammonia spike, and these baby angelfish are very very delicate fish, and they do not handle ammonia spikes, nitrite, nitrate levels very high, and they'll kill over and die if anything. So, now, how 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 long do you keep them on the brine shrimp before you start switching out to like your other foods that you feed them? Uh, usually, I feed them baby brine shrimp. It depends on the growth rates because you know not all fish grow at the same rate. So uh, sometimes you get some fish that outgrow the others that they eat a little bit more aggressively. And uh, actually, when you do deal with baby fish in general, they produce a hormone that they release into the water system, which uh, slows down the growth rates of their siblings. And it slows down the growth of their siblings, and what happens is uh, you might get one fish that might outgrow all the rest, and he becomes a little bit more of an aggressive eater and grows a little bit faster, or, you know, it, it depends on the fish. So usually, <clears throat> roughly at about three weeks to a month, I'll start weaning them off the brine shrimp. What I'll do is I'll take uh, a little bit of crushed up flake, and uh, I'll crush it into the tank, and I'll let it stir around in the water column and let them. And what they're going to do is they're going to pick at it. You know, they're going to mash it around in their mouth, get a taste for it. They're not going to like it at first. They're going to spit it out kind of like babies do. And eventually they do develop a taste for it and they do start to eat it. And when they do start to eat it, they're very vigorous feeders. So uh, what I like to do is I like to feed them in the morning because in the morning that, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And uh, I let them go a couple of hours, and at nighttime, um, I get back home from work a couple of hours, six, eight hours later, and they are very hungry. So what I do is I take advantage of the fact that they're hungry, and usually when you deal with an animal that's hungry, it's ready to eat anything that, you throw, you know, you give to it. So I, that's the time that I use to take advantage and start introducing the crushed up flakes to them. And uh, they they have no choice but to eat it because that's the only thing that's available to them. 
So they eat, they'll chew it up, get a taste for it, spit it out. But eventually they clean up the bottom and they do eat it. And then once I do see that they're eating it, they and they're continuously eating it and they're responding to the flakes, then that's when I switch them over 100% onto the flake food and get them off the brine shrimp. Now, you said that um, they, they, they'll produce a hormone to prevent the other ones from growing. Do you separate them at, by sizes as they start growing so that it doesn't slow them all down? Oh, yeah. But, you, you know, it depends. It actually depends on the fish that you breed because uh, angelfish are very social fish when they're small. They like the company of other angelfish. And uh, I've seen it up to a couple of months. I've had fish all the way from just uh, hatching out of the eggs, free swimming, all the way up to breeding age. And I've seen the, the behavior that they display throughout their life. So I can pretty much gauge an angelfish's behavior at the point of time that it's, you know, how long it's been alive for. So I know if uh, it gets to a certain point, they become aggressive when they start to pair off and they start to claim territory where they want to mate and spawn then that's when you run into a little bit of problems because they become aggressive and they want they don't want to be bothered at that time. So they you know, they pretty much tell everybody else, you know, get out, this is my room and I'm gonna do my thing over here and you guys go over there and mind your own business. So uh angelfish at a young age, they're very, very, very social fish. They don't attack each other. Um just a rule of thumb. If you have a fish that's small enough to fit into another fish's mouth, it will eat it because that is an opportunity for food. That is an instinct, and it will take advantage of that instinct. But if you have two fish that are relatively the same size and you have one fish that cannot fit in the other fish's mouth and that fish does not feel that it can eat it, you should have no problem. But that's in, that's pertaining to angelfish because they are a relatively peaceful cichlid, such as discus are. But uh, when you get into your bigger South and Central American cichlids like your Oscars, Salvanis, uh, Manigwins, uh, you know, Red Devils and stuff like that, then it becomes a little bit more of a different story because those cichlids display uh, a lot more aggressive behavior at an earlier age. So, Well, I noticed from watching your videos that you keep all your fish just in pairs. Do you do you, do you ever keep them in more than pairs other than when they're uh, little? Do or do you just always uh, keep yeah, it's, it's been the best game plan that I've had so far, and it's worked wonders for me. Uh, I've gotten that from uh, professional breeders that have it, and uh, that's the way they do things, and I've seen that it's worked really well for them. So all I've done is just follow in their footsteps. And uh, I've actually tried to pair two large adult angelfish, and uh, I've tried to take one male and one female that weren't paired off yet, try to put them together in the tank and see if maybe, you know, he says hello to her and they start conversating and he's like, oh, you know what, she looks good and stuff like that. But um, it, it's life doesn't work out that easily with these fish. Um, it's a long, drawn-out process, and uh, they actually have to grow up with each other and get to know each other. And um, my, best is, my best success has come from getting a group of juveniles allowing them to live together on a daily basis. It's like putting a bunch of roommates together in a room, and you see who gets along with who. And then, you know, when you get two that get along well with each other, they break off from the group and they do their own thing. So, you know, you get a nice little group of uh, maybe nickel-dime-sized angelfish, allow them to grow up together. They'll get to know each other. 
And eventually you'll have a male that'll spot a female somewhere in the group and he'll say, hey, why don't we take a walk and talk to me over here? And and he'll uh, whine and dine her. And then, you know, before you know it, you have some babies. Now, one question I have that some people may not know is uh, how do you tell the difference between a male and a female angelfish? Well, to be honest with you, um, and this is speaking from my own personal experience, I don't want to speak on behalf of anybody else, and I am not, I'm far from a professional. I, I do a relatively good job at breeding angelfish, but I do this, this is a hobby for me, and I'm doing my best to learn as much from this as I possibly can. So this is just based on my own personal experience. Um, basically, I like to gauge these fish on behavior, and uh, I watch them as they grow and uh you know, uh, it's kind of like being around people. You can gauge a person and you see two people. You see a guy and a girl hanging out in the corner and they're always eating together or they're always walking off to an, another place and you always see it. And it's easy to gauge these fish because you have two fish that usually break off from the group and become very interested in each other. The male starts to become very defensive of the female. If any other males come around, he'll say, look, back off, this is my girlfriend. And it becomes obvious to the eye. And uh, you, it's mostly behavior because the males compete over the females. They compete for the females' attention. They flash. They spread their fins. They color up. They puff up. It's it's a display of anything. And females, I notice uh, I've never had a male and female lip lock. I've always had two males chase each other around or my female chasing other females around. And it's funny because with this red koi pair, my female was keeping all of the other females away from the male and the male was keeping all of the other males away from her. So they were very, very defensive of each other. But at no point in time have they ever attacked each other or picked at each other. So they, I have them in my tank right now and I have them in front of me. And as I look at them, they swim side by side and there is no sign at all of aggression from the pair. It's nothing at all. But um, when you're dealing with juvenile angelfish, it's relatively impossible to look at them and say, look, this is a male and this is a female. It's hard to judge that. I judge it on behavior and how they act. The males are aggressive. They chase the other males away, and the females are also aggressive towards the other females. When you have a pair, they defend each other against the world, if anything, so to speak. So uh, that's pretty much what I look for. And um, the aggressive behavior, when you get an angelfish that's usually more aggressive than the other angelfish, it's most likely it's going to be a male. They have uh, they build up testosterone. They get really excited. And then the male is always constantly going around the female. You'll see the female stand still, and the male is going around her, circling around her, spreading his fins. He's like a peacock in a way. And he colors up, and, and he's doing his best to impress her. He's saying, look, you know, I'm here, notice me. And it's very easy to spot that type of behavior in these fish. Okay. That, um, I only got, we only got a couple minutes left, so why don't you tell people about your uh, YouTube channel real quick so people know where to yes. look for that. And... Now, you can catch my YouTube channel. It's called Majestic Cichlids. It's all about angelfish. I'm an angelfish breeder. I've been doing this roughly a year and a half now. I've dealt with a gold marble project. I've had a koi project. I've had a couple of different projects. My latest project has been a red koi HR select project from uh, Angels Plus. 
And uh, recently I've had a successful spawn I'm currently working on. Hopefully going to produce some fry from this pair. And uh, I also give information. I have a great little MC Q&A cichlid series, which is called Majestic Cichlids Question and Answers. You can drop your questions in the comment section below of my videos, or you can send your emails to my email address at ebencantry2177 at gmail.com, and I will do my absolute best to answer your questions in a prompt fashion to the best of my ability. Now, my channel is not only about angelfish. I've been in the hobby for roughly about 25 years, and I do have extensive knowledge in other areas of fish keeping, such as South American cichlids, some of your catfish species, your schooling species, Central American cichlids. I'm learning a little bit about Africans. I've been doing a little bit of research on Africans to familiarize myself with some of the species that are in the genus and also the care and, uh, you know, how to pair them off, a little bit of breeding, and I'm just trying to get an idea of how everything works. I've spoken to other fish breeders, and I just listen to them, and it's just a, I'm a sponge of anything for information, and I, I just love learning. And you can always learn from somebody who knows more than you are. Regardless of the experience that I have with my angelfish, I'm always open to suggestions and advice. I never turn on advice because... Maybe there's something that somebody else has tried that might work better for me that I haven't tried yet. So my eyes are always open and my ears are always open. I'm always looking and listening for any great ideas that anybody else might have in the fish-keeping hobby. So that's just a little bit of myself. <laughs> oh, thank you for being on the show today, and we'll have to get you back on So, because you seem to have a lot of knowledge. So Anytime, being Andrew. On. I really appreciate the time on your show. And so everybody, we'll catch you on the next show. And I'm my, on my uh, YouTube channel, Majestic Cichlids, Dakota Discus. Great show. You're doing a little bit of discus breeding yourself. I'm going to get around to that one day myself, and I'm going to teach you a thing or two about breeding discus fish. Thank you. All right. Have a good one, Andrew. Thank you for having me on you the show. Too. Goodbye. Right, you too. Thank you for listening to Dakota Aquatics. Please join us next week for another fun-filled episode.